Amen. Well, this morning we end our series, Questioning Christianity, and we've looked at quite a few different things, and it's been heavy. It's been a heavy series. It's been hard, hard questions that have hard answers. We've looked at hypocrisy and exclusivity and science and race and heaven and hell and the bloodiness of the Bible, the problem of evil, homosexuality. It's been heavy, but I hope it's been helpful. And if you've missed any of those, you can find those on our website or Facebook page or YouTube channel. And what I've tried to show is that Christianity is not the only ones who are religious. In fact, religions aren't the only ones who are religious. All people are religious in some way. We all hold to core beliefs about the world. Every single person has core beliefs about ultimate things. Every person, every person has a belief system, a worldview, a way of viewing the world's. Another way of saying that is every person is a worshiper. There has never been a human being who is not a worshiper. We all orient our life around someone or something. We give our lives to someone or something. We serve someone or something. There is no neutrality. We've got to remember this as Christians in the culture today. There is no neutrality. In a world where God exists... Every split second, every square inch is claimed by that God. And it's counterclaimed by the enemy of God. And all people are, are spiritual in some sense. And this is actually kind of interesting. With the rise of technology and science, many said that spirituality would go away. And we would be more rational and we would leave faith. But actually, it's not been the case. Spirituality is on the rise. People are religious in all sorts of ways. All the major religions are actually growing if you look internationally. And again, it's a weird spirituality, though. It's not Christianity. Oftentimes, Christianity is mingled in there. In fact, even Jim Carrey, as of recent, has become a very spiritual person. I mean, who would have thought Ace Ventura would be into meditation? <laughs> Lloyd Christmas, talking higher power. But it's on the rise. And what I want us to see, I want us to think about worldview this morning and try to think more explicitly of our view of the world. And the question is, which view of the world makes the most sense? Which view is most intellectually and existentially satisfying? And I want to submit that a worldview that's centered on God makes the most sense of all things. I, quoted C.S. Lewis before in this series where he said, I, I, I believe in the sun, not only can I can see it, but by it I can see all things. The Bible makes sense of all things. And so I want us to ask five questions this morning. This would be a more topical sermon rather than a topositional sermon. And the five questions are, who are we? Where are we? What's wrong? What's the solution? And what time is it? And these are ultimate questions, and I want to encourage you to use these questions. Again, I've said it a few times, I think one of the main ways that we ought to do evangelism as Christians is by asking questions. Oftentimes we get pinned in the corner, but we ought to be asking more questions. And it's a great way to turn the conversation. Isn't that one of the hardest things about evangelism? Is how do I get from talking about the game to Jesus? And an easy way is just to ask questions and ask these deep fundamental questions. One of the things I learned quickly going to seminary, and it's even a challenge now in ministry, is I went to seminary, you're just in a bubble, and I was meeting no unbelievers and was not sharing the gospel at all. 
And so I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go on campus at University of Louisville and spend, you know, a couple hours a week. And I would use these questions and I would just go and say, hey, you got, you got a minute, let me ask you some questions. I want to know if you thought through some of these fundamental questions, the deep questions of life. And I was shocked by how few had actually even thought about them. And so use these sorts of questions in your evangelism. Everybody's got to deal with them. Number one, who are we? What are humans? What does it mean to be human fundamentally? And the Bible tells us that we are image bearers of the one true God, created by him, for him, with responsibilities that accompany that status, created to serve him and reflect his glory. That's who we are. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. Footnote, not in my notes, so I need to be very guarded here. But I just saw, some of you are seeing this, it's just amazing where our, where our world's going. I just saw recently a, an agenda now so that you have a baby and forget the blue and forget the pink. Maybe some of y'all saw the Celine Dion commercial, another story as well. But the idea is now forget he and she, let's call them babies. Because who are you to impose gender on those babies? And so you don't call them him or her, you call them babies. And then when they turn four years old, let them decide. Because we often give huge life-shifting decisions to four-year-olds, don't we? <laughs> babies. Well, now the Bible says here we're created male and female. God has created us with binary gender. It's his decision. It's not ours. Footnote in, that's another sermon for another day. But because we're all made in the image of God, all people have dignity. Not, other, not many other worldviews can actually say that. But because we believe that we are created in the image of God, every single human being, regardless of cognitive ability, regardless of ethnic or economic background, all are endowed with dignity, inherent value, meaning, and purpose. God has created us as the crown of creation, each endowed with dignity as a person because of who you are. You are valuable. You are made in God's image. And the main alternative here to this question is atheism, evolution. We're just evolved from apes. We are not fundamentally different from any other thing, right? Because the whole world is just matter in motion. We are no different fundamentally, according to atheism, than cockroaches. We just happen to have bigger brains. But we all know that's wrong, don't we? I mean, every person knows even that's not right. Humans are different, and it's more than just more time, more evolution. We don't have funerals for cockroaches. But because humans are the crown of creation, the apex of the world, not the ex-apes of the world, we all are endowed with dignity and value. Here's how Pastor Tim Keller puts it. I was really helped by his book, Making Sense of God. If you haven't read that, it's, it's on the top shelf, but it's good. He says this, he says, to hold that human beings are the product of nothing but the evolutionary process of the strong eating the weak, evolution, but then to insist that nonetheless every person has a human dignity to be honored is an enormous leap of faith against all evidence to the contrary. There's no reason 
to say humans have any value or dignity according to atheism. According to the Bible, there's every reason. We're made in the image of God. Every human being is an image bearer. Lots we could say there. That's the first question. Who are we? Second, where are we? Where are we? What is this world? Is it a a chance random universe? No. We live in God's good and beautiful, though badly broken, creation. The creation of the God whose image we're made in, and it's finely tuned for his creation. We are at home here as human beings. It is really astounding. Again, Tim Keller says, in terms of probability, the chances that all of the dials would be tuned to life-permitting settings all at once are about 10 to the hundredth power. Of all the possible arrangements of settings, there was only one in billions of trillions that could have produced life on the planet. The earth is unique, and it's unique because God made it for us. The rest of the known universe is hostile to life, but earth is full of finely calibrated laws and forces, protons and neutrons, Staying together to form atoms, we have liquid water. We're just the right distance from the sun. We have an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere, the size of the moon, the correct location in the galaxy, the type of star, thick enough crust, the magnetic field, the electromagnetic forces, carbon production, gravity. Earth is clearly the privileged planet. Here's how world-renowned scientist Francis Collins puts it. He says, I've shared this with you on the Sermon on Science, but he says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. It's a privileged planet. With this world, God has given his image bearers a cosmic welcome mat. We're at home. And of course, this in many ways is now called the crisis of faith for science. Because they see it and it is, I mean, research just continues to unveil how it's all designed. Or at least, according to them, appears designed. And they've got to do something with this. It's their crisis of faith. And really, the main alternative is the multiverse theory. And it is a theory. The idea that maybe there are zillions and zillions of universes, and ours just happen to have it right. Maybe. (laughs) It's a theory. But there's no evidence for such. And honestly, there's no way of even knowing, right? That's not science. That's faith. The earth is finely tuned for the flourishing of humans. God made this world for us. And isn't it beautiful? We take its beauty for granted. It is gorgeous. Even West Texas. We moved from Central Texas, and people think Central Texas is beautiful, and it is in its own way. But when Elise and I first moved back, you know, 15, 16 months ago, we were just struck afresh by how gorgeous the skies are here. I mean, West Texas skies are amazing, probably because it's all flat. That's all right. <laughs> skies are beautiful. And each portion of God's geography has its unique beauty. And there again, the Christian world, you can explain beauty. God is a God of beauty. God has wired us to see beauty. 
And again, what's the best atheist can do in terms of explaining beauty? If we're all just matter in motion, just a chance random universe, there's no beauty. The best they can say is that gorgeous landscapes are gorgeous to us just because they would alert us to the prospect of food. That's the only reason we're attracted to such things. Alerts us to the prospect of food. Or even human beauty. Again, made in God's image. What do they say? Well, eat, kill, reproduce. Survival of the fittest. Beauty is merely one of many random neurological hardwired responses to particular data. It's merely the biological need to display ourselves in order to attract mates that we might spread our seed. Natural selection. In order to attract mates or to recognize health and fertility in others. That ruins beauty, doesn't it? If it's all mechanical, well, no. Same with love. Love would be merely to propagate your tribe. Well, where are we? No, we're in God's good and beautiful world, even though it's broken. Third question, what's wrong? Pretty much anyone with a head on their shoulders agrees something ain't right. What is the problem with this world? It is not the way it's supposed to be. And again, the world gives various reasons. The problem is politics. Wrong politicians, wrong policies, wrong laws. Others say the problem is the bad people. Those people that are unlike me, my enemies. Many urbanites would say, well, lack of education, that's the problem. Some say religion is the problem. Greed, drugs, alcohol, global warning, warming, you name it. Again, God's word is very clear on what's wrong with the world. We call it the fall. It's really the cosmic tragedy. Humanity has rebelled against its maker. That's the problem. This rebellion reflects a cosmic dislocation between the creator and the creation. There are lots of things wrong, but the fundamental problem is sin. That's what's the fundamental issue with why our world has gone astray. Sin has disordered the world. The whole world. That's why Romans 8 says the whole creation is in bondage to corruption. We have an explanation for things like tsunamis and fires and hurricanes. The world is cursed because of sin. It's not the way it's supposed to be in the world. It's not the way it's supposed to be in our relationships. Some of you are dreading Thursday. Sin has caused relationships to be ruptured. We can't get along. We sin against one another. Just think about the sins mentioned in the New Testament. Anger and revenge and gossip and slander and envy. Sin is the root cause of all of that. And again, atheism has no regard for anyone outside of our tribe, right? It's the strong eat the weak. Every man for himself. But the Bible says our fundamental problem is vertical. It leads to all the other problems we see, but the fundamental problem is vertical. G.K. Chesterton was a writer and uh, there was a newspaper ad that came out and was asking the readers, what's the wrong with the world? This very question. And G.K. Chesterton wrote in, dear sirs, I am G.K. Chesterton. He got it right. Human rebellion, that's the issue. And what's the consequence? The consequence is death. The wages of sin is death. It's the finality of all love. It's the finality of all relationships. And we've earned it because of our sin. But God's vision for his world is a death-free world. God so loved the world, he gave his only son that those who believe in him would not die, but have life everlasting. 
Which leads us to the fourth question, what's the solution? How can we overcome the problem? Again, what does the world say? Well, all sorts of things. The problem we need to solve can be solved through economic development, education, clean water, a greener world, no religion, equality. We just all need to come together. Around what? Well, it depends on who you ask. More security, stronger military, alleviating third world debt, stopping the overpopulation of the world, on and on and on. And here's the main difference between what the world will say the solution is and what God says the solution is. The world, in some way or another, looks inward to solve the problem. What can we do? Whether it's education or government or meditation or moral performance or penance or whatever, you fix it. The solution is found in us. But God's word says the solution to our main problem and all other problems ultimately is found outside of us. It's found in Jesus Christ. The creator has acted, is acting, and will act within his creation through his son to deal with the weight of evil set up by human rebellion, to bring the world to which he intended, a place that resonates fully with his presence and his glory. The gospel is the solution. Jesus is the solution. So it makes us go back to question one. Question one is who are we? Well, we're made in the image of God, but we know from the Bible that that image now is marred. It's been distorted. Every person remains made in the image of God. We can't lose that, but it can be marred and distorted. And we've done that. But according to the gospel now, that image is being renewed. That's who we are. If we're in Christ, we're being redeemed. We've been given the gift of the spirit. And so God is transforming us. We're on this journey of transformation to be more like Jesus. We're redeemed in Christ. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life is hidden with him. So now when the father looks at you, he sees his son and he says about his son, in you, I am well pleased. Jesus and his spirit brings the solution. And the fifth question then is, is what time is it? Where are we in the story? We all live out of some story. Most of us live in our own little stories, but we all have some larger story, some larger framework that makes life worth living. Well, what is that story? And again, here the world gives usually two different visions. Sometimes they overlap, but usually it's the vision of utopia or dystopia. The vision of everything's getting better. Mostly tied to technology and education. We're heading on the right track. And then there's the vision of dystopia. Well, the world's heading to hell in a handbasket. It's all getting worse and worse and worse. And we see this in our movies, right? Utopian movies, such as Back to the Future, The Truman Show, Zootopia, Dystopia movies, Wally, one of my favorites, Hunger Games. According to Scripture, there's a mixture of both. In fact, in some ways, the church is the utopian vision. We're going to be just fine. But the world is the dystopian vision. It's going to continue to get worse and worse. In fact, in some ways, the utopia of the church is correlative to the dystopia of the world. As it gets harder and harder to be a Christian, the church is going to be purified and strengthened. What time is it? Well, Scripture says we are in the last days that started with the first coming of Jesus, right? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says this. Long ago... And many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says this. Now these things happen to them as an example 
but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We live in the last days. We live at the end of the ages. We live in this time between the time. Jesus has come. He's won the victory, but he, is yet not, he has not yet closed up shop. This time, this overlap of the ages. The kingdom has come in Jesus, but it won't be fully consummated until he returns to renew the world. We are spiritually raised, yet not yet physically raised, which is why this life is such a battle. We await, along with creation, Romans 8, 23, the redemption of our bodies. That's what we're waiting on. Our souls have been redeemed. We're waiting on resurrection. That's why the Bible calls Jesus in his resurrection body the first fruits. You farmers will know first fruits come. That's good news. The first fruits are that first batch of crop that guarantees more is coming and more of the same. Jesus and his resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. His resurrection guaranteed ours. It's coming. We're just not there yet. The Holy Spirit is also called the first fruits. If we've trusted in Jesus, we've been given the gift of the empowering presence of God. The Spirit lives within us, and Scripture calls the Spirit the first fruits. He is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance. It's coming, but here we are in this time of tension and struggle where our spirit battles the flesh. And where we belong in the story, it should shape our lives in the present. And so what should we do on the way? How then shall we live, as Francis Schaeffer asked? Well, with urgency and intentionality. I love the way Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. I wonder what you would put next. The end of all things is at hand. Sell everything and move to a compound. No, be self-controlled. And sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's time to be serious. It's time to deny self and to deny sin. Self-control and sobriety of mind. Serious about God and serious about his plan for the church and for the world. We're called to live for his kingdom not ours, the kingdom of Christ our Lord, not the little constricting confines of our own kingdom of comfort and convenience. We're made for more. Alicia has a 96-year-old grandmother doing, doing really well. Her name's Nani, and she uses an iPhone. But she only uses that iPhone to call. She tried texting, it just didn't go well. <laughs> so we would receive all kinds of things. So she just calls. She just uses that phone to call. That's all she uses it for. But as you know, those little computers in your pocket are capable of so much more, right? Sending pictures and video, FaceTiming and storing documents and connecting to the web. And I mean, you name it. It does all sorts of things. And yet she only uses it to make a basic phone call. Some of you are operating like Nani's iPhone. Made for the grand purpose of God to be a part of what he is doing and rescuing and redeeming people who will then be instruments in his hands to go and help rescue and redeem other people. 
He's transferring people from the kingdom of darkness and transforming them into a people of Jesus to be like Jesus. And his goal and his plan is that you are involved in some of you, the extent of your service to the Lord Jesus Christ is showing up here for one hour. You're made for so much more. Brothers and sisters, let's live with urgency. Let's live with intentionality. Let's be engaged in the work of Christ, of building one another up, helping others follow Jesus. In other words, discipleship. Disciples who make disciples. Because we know what our purpose is in this time. And here, once again, the Christian faith gives you something to live for. Don't we all want to be a part of something great? Ephesians 3, 9 to 11, there is nothing greater or grander than the local church. Ephesians 3, 10, it is God's eternal purpose that through the church, he will show his wisdom to the powers. The Christian faith gives us something to live for. In fact, better, it gives us someone to live for. What time is it? It's time to live for the Lord That's the meaning of our lives. You may have a good job, good family, good friends, good house, good car. What's it all for? Why does any of it even matter? How does it actually make a difference in this life or in the next? Are you accomplishing anything beyond just your cozy little kingdom? Who are you living for? What are you living for? I love the way Paul Tripp puts it. He says, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively shaping them into his likeness. And he wants you, Christian to be a part of it. We have meaning in life. We have purpose in life. Atheism, again, is bankrupt in this regard. Just evolved apes living for self in a chance random world. No meaning, no purpose, just natural selection, strong eat the weak, accumulate all you can in this life, and then nothing. Francis Crick, famous molecular biologist, said this. He said, your joys, you... And your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. That's why there's so much bankruptcy in that worldview. There's nothing to live for except for yourself. And those of us who's tried that know that that leads to bankruptcy as well. We need meaning. We need purpose to flourish in life. It's interesting, there was a, a doctor, a professor named Atul Gawande, and he worked with a nursing home. And he comes in and he had the director of the nursing home bring in all kinds of animals, brought in for the, for the people there in the nursing home to take care of. So he brought in birds and cats and goats, rabbits, chickens, tigers. Not really, that probably wouldn't have gone well. Just seeing if you're listening. And just said, hey, take care of these animals. And it was amazing. Some people who had stopped speaking years ago began to talk. And people who had been withdrawn began to engage. 
started coming to the nurse's station asking if they could help. Parakeets were adopted. They were named. The place transformed. The use of psychotropic drugs for agitation dropped significantly. Death fell 15%. (laughs) They had been given at least some small reason to live. And it made a huge difference. We need purpose beyond ourselves and meaning beyond ourselves to live for something grand. And Christianity gives us that. I wonder, though, how many of us are actually engaged in it? How many of us live any different than our atheist neighbors? Christianity makes the most sense of the world. It makes the most sense of our life, of our experience, of our social experience, what addresses problems the best. It's the most rationally coherent, logically consistent, gives us meaning and satisfaction and freedom and identity and hope and describes beauty and logic and gives us a ground for the trust of our mind and the basis of truth and justice. I submit that Christianity provides the best worldview. And add all to that the fact that it is grounded in history. Unlike so many religions, Christianity is grounded in a historical event. The launch pad of the Christian faith was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There had been no physical resurrection. Christianity would have never spread. But there was a man who predicted that he would die. There was a man who died and there was a man who walked out of the tomb. The historical resurrection of Jesus provides the main explanation for how the Christian faith took off. And historically speaking, it has more evidential attestation than most other ancient historical events. We have every reason to believe it happens. Let me mention just a few. Number one, there were men who gave their lives for this truth. Men died for this truth. You don't give your life for a lie. Number two, there was never a body produced. That would have been the first task on the agenda. Find the body. It was never found. The gospel accounts were written within the lifetimes of those who were eyewitnesses. He didn't come and show up to just one individual like so many other religions, Islam or Mormonism. He showed up to groups. There was even 500 eyewitnesses, people around during the time of the writing of the gospels that saw it. They had names. Very interesting study. Next time you're reading through the Gospels, just take note of all the names mentioned. It is thoroughly historical. Could have been easily disproved and dismissed if it didn't happen. And the Gospels show no sign of being made up, of being edited to fit the needs and sensibilities of the current culture. They're sloppy documents. For example, women were the first ones to go to the tomb. Anyone who knows ancient history knows that the the testimony of women was not admissible in a court of law. If you were making the thing up, you don't put women as the first eyewitnesses due to their social status of the day. You put men, you put credible men as the first eyewitnesses. They wouldn't have made that up. That's counterproductive if it was a fake agenda. You wouldn't have had in a Jewish framework Jesus receiving worship. You wouldn't make up the incarnation. Within a Jewish framework, thoroughly monotheistic, you don't worship anyone else. Jesus receives worship. If you're making this thing up, you don't have God crucified. When the book of Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. If you're making up a faith, you don't crucify your king. You don't have God becoming a man again. In a Jewish framework, that was unheard of. 
You don't have individual resurrection. Again, especially in the Jewish framework, according to the Old Testament, according to Jewish thought, resurrection was an end time event that occurred when all of God's people would be resurrected. See Ezekiel 37. Not one man in the middle of history. You don't make that up. If you're making this up, you don't include how dull the disciples were. That's not helpful. If you're making it up, you don't put all of the unsavory friends that Jesus had. You edit out the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Some of it is just frankly embarrassing if you are making it up. It's not how you should make it up if you're making it up. It's full of counterproductive material, if not true, but it is true. And Jesus Christ is the single most influential person who has ever lived. We even divide history based upon him. Before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. His character is impeccable. Uniquely combines high majesty with great humility. He was committed to truth and justice and mercy and grace. He was tender, but he wasn't weak. He was bold, but he wasn't harsh. He was humble, but not without uncertainty. He had unbending convictions with complete approachability. Free of fear. Free of prejudice. And he claimed to be God and he did things only God can do. Which is why today 50,000 people a day become Christians. According to Pew Research Center. Every day. 50,000 people join this global movement launched by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The faith has crossed every cultural division uniquely because it's true. I really appreciate the broadcaster, Larry King. One of my favorite things is when Larry King brings on liberal pastors because Larry King knows his Bible. And so when a liberal pastor tries to like, you know, distort the scripture to make it more palatable, Larry King will push on him. Well, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say? <laughs> so it's fun to see. It's actually not fun, it's really sad, but I can't help but be humored by it. But I really like, I really like just the way he, he uh, does interviews. And one time he was asked towards the end of his career, if you could interview one person, who would it be? And without hesitation, he said, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so they said, well, what would you ask him? And without hesitation, he said, I would ask him if he was truly born of a virgin. Because if he was truly born of a virgin, everything is changed. That makes everything different. Everything hinges on what we believe about Jesus Christ. As C.S. Lewis put it, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Brothers and sisters, let's not live lives as if Christianity is moderately important. If you're a believer, let me just encourage you to resolve today to be all in. Quit him on and, 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 and trying to walk a fence. Get all in. Fully devote yourself to this king and live for what you were made for. Him and his glory and the building up of his church. If you're here and you haven't trusted Jesus, you can do so today. Don't leave here without giving your life to him. And if you've done that, 
your first step of obedience is going public. And in the New Testament, going public with Jesus is being baptized as a believer. If you've done that and you haven't gone public, let's do that. If you've got questions about trusting the Lord, I'd love to. There's no other conversation I'd rather have. But you can also talk to whoever invited you or whoever's near you if they're a member of Southside. Don't leave here without having the question resolved. There is no more important question. If it's false, it's of no importance. If it's true, if it's, it's of infinite importance.